This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, I've got a terrific special guest coming up in segments two and three today. I'll be chatting with economist John Williams. Many of you who've been longtime listeners of the program will recognize John as a returning guest. John actually has the website ShadowStats. Uh, ShadowStats.com is the web address. Uh, John actually tracks economic data like the unemployment rate, like uh, gross domestic product, like the inflation rate, uh, using the old methodologies. It probably surprises none of my listeners that as time has passed, changes have been made to these calculation methodologies to make the reported data appear more favorable. Well, I'm going to be chatting with John about the real inflation rate in segments two and three and what he forecasts moving ahead. I should point out that as I am recording the program this week, uh, the Fed is meeting and uh, we have not yet uh, seen what results uh, the Fed may put forth. But my guess is, given what's going on in the stock market, that we see them soften their approach on uh, this hawkish monetary policy that they were talking about pursuing. Today is the last day for you to get the January special report. Uh, the January special report is titled The Changing Face of Long-Term Medical Care. When you order the report by visiting the website requestyourreport.com, I'll send you the report. I'll also send you a copy of my best-selling revenue sourcing book, which contains a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy. There's also a lot of bonus information that you'll get as well. So again, to get all these free free resources, all you need to do is visit the website requestyourreport.com. Well, certainly anyone who is invested in stocks or a derivative of stocks, uh, maybe stock funds in your 401k or IRA, is certainly aware that uh, we've had a very, very rocky start, and that may be the, may be the understatement of the year uh, in stocks. Now, there is a technically significant indicator called a 200-day moving average. Now, I want to talk to you here just for a minute about the NASDAQ market. The NASDAQ market is tech-heavy. And the current price of the NASDAQ has fallen below its 200-day moving average of price. Now, this is, as I said, technically significant because often institutional investors will determine how much of their portfolio they want to allocate to stocks based on where this moving average is relative to current price. So what is a 200-day moving average of price? Well, if you're not at all familiar with it, it's very simple to calculate. As it relates to the NASDAQ market, you would simply add the closing values of the NASDAQ for the last 200 days and then divide that total by 200 to get an average. Averages are simply adding together numbers and dividing by the number of numbers that you added together to get the average. So the 200-day moving average of price, if you think about it this way, it's the market's consensus of value over the last 200 days. 
Over the last 200 days, this is what market participants think these stocks are worth. So when you have a current price that's higher than the 200-day average price, you have an average consensus of value in stocks where market participants are saying, hey, stocks are worth more now than they were on average over the past 200 days. And conversely, if current price falls below the 200-day average price, then current consensus of value is that stocks aren't worth as much as they were on average over the past 200 days. Now, what we're seeing in the NASDAQ market, as well as a couple other markets that I'll talk about here momentarily, is that last week, prices dropped below the 200-day average of price. Now, that's not all I want to point out as far as the NASDAQ market is concerned, because when you look at the NASDAQ market in detail, 40% of the NASDAQ-listed stocks are already down 50% from their 52-week high. Think about that for a minute. 40% of NASDAQ-listed stocks are down 50% at a minimum from their 52-week high. So the only reason the NASDAQ has continued to post higher numbers is because of a few stocks. The leadership is not there. There's just a few stocks leading the way, and they're the large technology stocks. Now, if you look at the S&P 500, you see now, just a few days after the NASDAQ, the S&P 500 has now fallen below its 200-day moving average of price. And the same thing is true of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Now, I've been stating for a very long time that stocks are overvalued and could correct at any time. Now, there are many analysts that have been saying the same thing. Jeremy Grantham, who is an investing legend, there's no other way to put it, in June of 2020 said, we're in a bubble. In January of 2021, he wrote that there's going to be a spectacular crash in the next few months. Of course, that spectacular crash never occurred, largely because the Federal Reserve and all other central banks went all in on stabilizing the market. And 2021 saw markets close at or near all-time highs. But now it seems that the tide may be turning. In fact, if you look at charts of market tops in 1929, of the NASDAQ market in 2000, which is in the, when the NASDAQ uh, market corrected, the tech stock bubble blew up, when Japan, when the Nikkei 225 blew up in 1989, and look at the chart today, you're seeing a blow-off top. A blow-off top defined as a steep rise in price followed by a steep decline in price. And as I said, all this taper talk by the Fed, all this talk of slowing the rate of currency creation or stopping currency creation altogether, stopping quantitative easing altogether, and raising interest rates has spooked the markets. 
And arguably, we are now on all indices, as I record this week's program, in bear market territory. Now, the Fed is in a difficult position here. I would say maybe even an impossible position. Now, why do I say that? Well, if they stop quantitative easing, if they slow quantitative easing, if they slow the rate of currency creation, which is all that means, we are going to see asset prices reset, in my opinion. You're going to see stocks crash. You're going to see real estate crash. The real estate market is already slowing because of higher interest rates. If you take a look at what's happened here in 2020, 2022, during the first month, you see that just talking about slowing the rate of currency creation has actually spooked markets significantly. Now, the other thing the Fed can do is continue currency creation. Now, we already have inflation at the highest levels we've seen in 40 years, and it's accelerating. So if the Fed continues currency creation to help the markets out, they risk inflation, or perhaps even hyperinflation. So the Fed has two choices, and both choices lead to very bad outcomes. And that's why I'm offering, along with the free report this month, which is available by going to requestyourreport.com, a lot of bonus information, including the best-selling revenue sourcing book, which contains a retirement planning strategy for today's economy, Uh, When you go to requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail the report and the book, you'll also get a lot of bonus information. Uh, We send this out to you free and with no further obligation. Just go to requestyourreport.com. Let us know where to mail the stuff, and we will be very glad to do that. I will be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. John Williams. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program once again is returning guest, economist John Williams. For those of you that are unfamiliar with John's work, I would invite you to go to his website. It is shadowstats.com. The website, again, is shadowstats.com. And uh, I am a big fan of uh, John's work. It's a great way to sort out what's really going on in the economy and uh, inflation. And, And, John, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you for having me, Dennis. So, John, for our listeners maybe that aren't familiar with your work and what motivated you to to found Shadow Stats, can you share just a bit about the kind of work that you do? Uh, sure. Um, as an economist, I started off um, a fairly, nor- fairly normal path with uh, some new approaches to econometric modeling. Econometric modeling is how uh, many economists uh, try to forecast ahead. They'll look at the past relationship between different numbers and and then uh, try and forecast ahead using their their formulas. Problem is that you get some big you have some big scale models that'll take you three years three years into the future. The only problem is that the numbers that you're basing those forecasts on. Uh, don't have a three-year lead time. I mean, you've got six to nine months lead time with most numbers uh, at best. So I, I started off uh, making, uh, developing forecast models with a um, basically six to nine-month lead time. That, that part out, you can you could predict things such as interest rates and movements in the in the economy. Um, 
and uh, where I, I had some success with that and people liked it, uh, then the government started playing around with its numbers, which made the forecasting a little more difficult. <clears throat> and when I say playing around with their numbers, I'm talking about um, early 1980s. And let me take you a little bit further back in time. Um, when Nixon closed the uh, gold window in uh, 1971, um, that effectively severed the direct relationship we, between the U.S. dollar and gold, um, its, it's, its convertibility. And uh, as a result, inflation began to surge. Um, by 1981, the, we're beginning to see a pickup in the headline inflation. Gold generally measures inflation over time. If you look at gold, price of gold, uh, they, what you could buy with it in uh, ancient Rome, let's say a loaf of bread, same amount of gold would, would buy you a loaf of bread today. Um, I had I was at a monetary conference a couple of years back in New York, and one guy was complaining how his mother had, uh, his little girl had been taken to see Broadway plays, and his Parents would always get a third, third row center, which is considered the prime seat. And uh, today, that uh, they, they'd buy the, they'd buy her seat for five dollars, and and today you couldn't uh, come close to it for five dollars. Um, you'd be looking at looking at uh, a couple of hundred. So, uh, but I told him very simply was that if his mother still had a the five dollar gold piece that they'd bought the seat for before, it would. Uh, that um, it'd still buy that uh, that seat. Gold preserves a purchasing power over time, and there's a, we, there's some variability. But when Nixon floated the dollar, um, that people had less confidence, and the, the dollar inflation started to pick up and come in and go into the early 80s. Uh, the federal government was looking at uh, what the higher inflation was going to do, the cost of living adjustment for people. And, things such as Social Security. <clears throat> so they decided to recast uh, the way they calculated elements of, of inflation. And the biggest factor right up front was the um, cost of housing. And, and what they did there was they eliminated um, where people own, own their own homes. The, the cost of people owning a home um, and everything that goes with that to uh, Converting it into what they called a homeowner's equivalent rent, which knocked about the effect was it knocked about one and a half percentage point off the headline CPI number on an annual basis. That's for the whole CPI, and so that reduced the level of the headline CPI, and it it reduced what had to be paid out in cost of living adjustments. They they met their goal there. The problem was that was never the concept of the the CPI or its adjustment. The idea. Of of the consumer price index, as it was originally defined, was the cost of maintaining a constant standard of living. And um, you, you had, uh, by two, 2005, you had people like uh, then-Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan arguing that, um, well, you know, uh, <clears throat> if, if a steak gets too expensive, people buy chicken. So really, we should substitute uh, chicken for steak when, when that happens. That's not maintaining a constant standard of living. And the substitution, that effect that was put in there, that's another element. Over time, what I did was I started estimating what the uh, consumer price index was 
uh, ahead of as it would have been um, had they not made their definitional changes to how the CPI was calculated. And over time, that has built up to be a fairly significant number, up around eight, eight or nine percentage points. Um, and that, uh, so that I estimate what today's CPI would be uh, uh, based on uh, based on the uh, uh, all the changes if they hadn't been made, if they still reported the numbers uh, consistently. John, can I jump in there just a minute? Because I think a perfect segue for our listeners would be, and by the way, if you're just joining us, I'm chatting with economist John Williams. His website is shadowstats.com. So, John, when when you look at these, I think it's fair to use the word maybe manipulated. Maybe that's too strong a word. When you when you look at this manipulated CPI number, um, you know, which came in just above seven percent uh, most recently, uh, when you go back and calculate the inflation rate the way it was done, you know, in the seventies, uh, what do you think the real inflation rate is presently? Uh, I'd be up uh, up around. Uh... Uh, 14.9, 15%. Significant. So where do you see it going from here? Well, it is, uh, uh, first of all, that is, uh, uh, in, in terms of my measure, that's the highest inflation uh, since 1947. In terms of the government's headline number, that's uh, uh, that's still the highest since, uh, since June of uh, 1980. And um, I'm looking for it to continue to, to spike. Now, in the, week, in the week in which we're talking, the Federal Reserve is going to have its uh, Federal Open Market Committee meeting. Uh, this is for uh, <clears throat> this, this is January meeting. And uh, they've already uh, indicated that they're intensifying the what they call tapering. Uh, the, cutting the pace of monetary stimulus that they put in place after the uh, pandemic hit, and the financial stimulus, the, the monetary stimulus by the Fed, has been a, tr- uh, a, a tremendous uh, uh, factor behind the, the surge in inflation. Uh, and even with what they're looking to cut back, it's we're, we already have um, a good, a good, a, a very strong. And increasing inflation base in, in place, it's going to take a while to uh, come back. And as, as uh, expectations move for higher inflation, it becomes self-feeding. I think it's. Uh, I think they're going to have a very difficult time containing it. Not only did, are, they, are they talking about uh, reducing the level of what they call that again that tapering, cutting back on the money monetary stimulus. Uh, the Fed, uh, at least last time around, uh, blamed the inflation on robust economic growth. And um, while the headline gross domestic product, which is the broadest, uh, G- the, the GDP is uh, the broadest measure of economy, and it has minimally recovered its pre-pandemic peak, uh, the basic economy has not. And um, if you raise interest rates in, um, in something shy of a really booming economy, you're going to drive what's already weak economy uh, deeper into the ground, and that's that's what they're looking to do. I mean, there's no way they're, they're they've got a strong enough economy here to to blame uh, uh, robust uh, activity on on the surging inflation. Um, let me give you an example as to why. Uh, right now, 
we're seeing really extreme distortions still from uh, the pan pandemic disruption, disruptions. The numbers are not being normally surveyed and, 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 and calculated. And I think when all the dust settles and we get better quality statistics down the road, you'll see that uh, uh, there was some uh, exaggeration in things such as the uh, the GDP and numbers that are are, are based on, but uh, <clears throat> based on uh, surveys by the government. Uh, for, for example, the unemployment rate. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics used to go out and uh, knock on doors and talk to people in the street, and uh, they don't do that anymore. They, they, they don't have their agents contact, see people directly. They call them on the telephone. They can't reach them on the telephone. They don't get counted. And uh, they, they, they acknowledge that the their unemployment estimate is shy of uh, reality, um, Chairman, Fed Chairman Powell's indicated that as well. But there's another element to the employment reporting. It's on a different basis, and that's called payroll employment. That reflects uh, people who are employed and where payroll taxes are paid by companies uh, to the government on, 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 the, on, the, on the salaries, uh, the, the incomes. And those are filings that are made with the states and the government. And those, those are hard numbers. And um, from what I can see, it's really the only hard economic statistic out here, uh, out there at the moment, where there's a solid base behind it. It's not tied to the whim of whether or not uh, someone's uh, available on the telephone during the uh, COVID crisis. These are people who are uh, actually working and receiving paychecks. And uh, what you'll see right now is that although the, our payrolls are well recovered from the bottom, uh, the bottom is maybe down 10.4% uh, or so from the year before. We're now down something like 2.3%. You say, well, hip, hip, array, it's re we're recovered. Not quite. Um, and so it's much better. Um, but what I've done is I've gone back and uh, looked at the um, a change in payrolls against pre the pre-recession peak and all the recessions back to World War II. And I would say we're down 2.3%. We're two, so we're still 2.3% shy of recovering the level of payrolls seen before the uh, the pandemic hit. It, it's, it's against the pre-pandemic uh, peak. And if you go back and you look at the historical recessions, that's that would be a weaker trough than five of the last eight recessions back to 1957. And the others that were steeper were you know, the Great Recession and such. It's it's improving. Uh, but we're still well shy of a normal economy. In other times, we'd still be deep in a recession. And um, that's not the time when you start raising interest rates. Uh, well, so John, the, the, clock, the clock says we need to leave it there, but uh, the good news is we have one more segment with John Williams. My guest today, Mr. John Williams, his website is shadowstats.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. I'll continue my conversation with John Williams when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is economist John Williams, who's got a terrific website, shadowstats.com. John tracks economic data um, that the way that it used to be tracked. And uh, John, uh, let's just jump right in again. You had mentioned in the first segment that um, inflation uh, – calculated the way it used to be calculated is in the 15% range. You said you probably expect that to accelerate. 
And it seems to me, John, the Fed's got two choices. They, they, they taper and the economy crashes, or they continue to create currency and we have more inflation, maybe even hyperinflation. So how do you see this playing out? Well, in fairness to the Fed, um, what they did in um, back back in um, March of uh, 2020, I guess it was, uh, when the, the the pre-pandemic peak was February and March, they started pumping extraordinary mon- money into the system, and they had to do that. They had little choice because we're facing a potential systemic collapse. This is not just a recession. It was something unlike anything uh, seen in modern times. And um, so they, they 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 pumped as much liquidity as they had to in the system to keep things afloat. Uh, they kept things basically afloat. The economy still had its deepest um, sinking uh, of, of of modern times, and it and it, it's it's come back some, but again, it hasn't recovered. Um, yet they they have to keep they have to keep that cash flowing to keep the system up. It's it's not fully recovered. And uh, again, if where they're talking about possibly raising interest rates, if they do that, that's going to tank the economy. The Fed's primary concern, they mentioned two things, basically, uh, inflation and economic growth. They want to keep inflation low and economic growth and employment high, which are fine goals. But the Fed is owned by the banking system. And the Fed's primary function is to keep the banking system afloat. And where they have to keep the banking system afloat, which will generally go with the economy, um, they don't have too much choice here. They've got to keep pumping money into the system. And you're going to see you're going to see uh, still higher money supply growth. You're going to see still higher inflation, and I think accelerating inflation, uh, where we actually get to a hyperinflation. It can come very quickly once it starts, but um, uh, people will talk about. Um, the, the, the velocity of uh, money, the, the speed at which the money supply turns over in the economy. You take the level of the GDP and you take the level of the of the uh, money supply in, in uh, nominal dollars and divide the money supply into the economy. And the the higher the velocity, the higher the ratio there, the, the turnover. Uh, in theory, the higher will be the inflation rate. And there's an element of truth to that. Uh, but that's that's with a relatively healthy economy because if you have a rapid turnover there, you means you have a strong economy and, and the inflation is being driven by strong economic activity. The dangerous circumstance is the one we have now with relatively low velocity where the money supply is expanding rapidly and the economy is uh, subpar. It's really not growing much if you if you if you look at the better quality numbers. And it hasn't again hasn't recovered where it was. Um, that's that's where you get uh, too much money going after too few goods, and that's what tends to spike the inflation and give you hyperinflation, which like you saw in the Weimar Republic or uh, Zimbabwe. And um, what we're we're seeing extreme stock market volatility this uh, last week or so. Um, it's not a uh, not a happy circumstance. Um, the, the Fed is very concerned about stocks because that affects a lot of their uh, their clientele and in the stock market, and they want to keep the economy strong. Again, they've got to keep the banks functional, which means pumping more cash into the system. It means higher inflation, despite all the all the Fed saying. The rest of it is is uh, they're, they're talking back and forth, and I, I think you're going to see um, in this week's 
uh, FOMC meeting, a little bit of hedging there, where the last time around they were, oh, we're just going to, things are just fine and dandy, and we're going to go ahead and uh, raise interest rates uh, in the middle of the year and reduce our uh, monetary stimulus rapidly. It's difficult. It's going to be real difficult to do that, so they're going to be hedging back and forth. That's what I would look for them to do here, but the end result is still going to be higher inflation, and it's very close to getting out of control. So, John, do you see this ending um, in a hyperinflation, and what does that look like? Well, in a hyperinflation, uh, yes, I, I, it's, it's, it's not a virtual certainty, but it's... Uh, uh, it's a fair shot, and uh, especially with uh, the Fed starts uh, uh, killing the economy by spiking interest rates, you're going to be getting a uh, uh, some kind of a, an inflationary recession, hyperinflationary depression. Um, in that in that case, the money becomes the thing that become effectively becomes worthless. Um, you could. Uh, Give you an example from the Weimar Republic. Before I was an economist, I was involved in the chainsaw industry, the family family business, and we imported a saw from West Germany. And I got to know the uh, the people there very well, and had a chance to talk with people who had actually lived through the Weimar inflation. And um, this was after World War One. The uh, Germans lost the French effectively took their gold and they printed money. And um, as the inflation picked up, you people knew they were getting into trouble because um, if you wanted to, let's say, go out for dinner um, and one, one night, you'd, you'd ha- you would negotiate the price of your dinner before you sat down because after the dinner, it would cost you more. And if you'd had an expensive bottle of wine that night, um, the next morning, that empty um, bottle of glass would be worth more than it was the night before filled with expensive wine. I mean, that's how rapidly it was deteriorating at the end. Um, but it, it got to the point that effectively the, the currency was worthless. And you saw, saw that in Zimbabwe, which is probably the worst hyperinflation anyone's seen. That was actually enabled a little bit by the U.S. dollar. As in Zimbabwe, the finance minister there said he was following the actions of our Federal Reserve Chairman, I think this is Alan Greenspan at the time, and he was just printing money. And um, it got so the, uh, what was a $2 bill, eventually they kept reprinting and they they increased the denominations on the what was equivalent of that $2 bill. It got up to something like $100 trillion. Never seen anything like that before. Uh, but the, what happened was, and, and there may be some, Lesson here or something that falls in between, but I, I, I think gold and silver are the areas that that that, that remain the uh, best best store of wealth here that will will uh, save the day for many people. Is that uh, at that time the, the dollar was reasonably our U.S. dollar was reasonably stable, so that if you were working in, in Zimbabwe and you got paid in Zimbabwe dollars, you immediately ran down to the black market and exchanged it for U.S. dollars, and you held those dollars as a store of wealth. Um, here we're looking at a problem with the U.S. dollar. Um, it hasn't hit yet. We are seeing higher inflation, uh, but that is an, that's a depreciation of the purchasing power, and most people's uh, incomes are not rising at 14% per year right now. 
So they're, they're losing purchasing power. And when that's raising, rising at 1,000% per year, um, it's going to, the purchasing power is going to uh, evaporate. Again, the currency becomes worthless. Um, so you try and convert it, convert the cash into something that has some value. In this case, we don't have uh, the, the U.S. dollar is not going to is, is the element that's going to be hit. Holding physical gold and silver is a traditional store of wealth, and uh, one I, th I think is uh, probably the best bet right here. Um, it, it's it's worked over millennia, and uh, the, the governments do everything they can to try and uh, squelch the purchasing of gold and silver because it, it's a, that usually indicates there's a, they're not doing their job. But since uh, since Nixon uh, went off the gold standard, and um, I started uh, publishing the, my alternate CPI measure, if you plot the price of gold against the CPI, you'll see that the price of gold, um, you know, has been it's hit, hit above, up, up around two thousand um, dollars. Well, what what used to happen was that the uh, at, at the at the time that Nixon uh, went off the uh, gold standard. The price of gold was around seventy-eight, seventy-nine dollars. That happened to be the level of the CPI as it's currently published, as are um, on an historical basis for that period of year, uh, period of time. And uh, my number would be the same because my numbers don't starting start changing against the headline number until the early 1980s. And if you look at a plot of gold, which skyrockets, uh, uh, curved upwards. Uh, the headline CPI rises, but it, 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 it flattens out. My number keeps right up with the price of gold. And in fact, uh, what my number is telling you is that if the, the real inflation is up around um, what you're seeing with the price of gold uh, in, in, terms of, in terms of change, that the price of gold is still uh, holding even with, uh, with, with inflation, maintaining your purchasing power. And, you know, um, John, in, in the time we have left, it, it seems that this this move from a, a fiat currency to, to to gold and silver perhaps has begun. I, I just read an article that I think the the central bank of Russia now actually has more of their reserve holdings in gold than in U.S. dollars for the first time in history. So, I mean, are we seeing the beginning of this uh, movement out of fiat toward gold and silver? In your view? Well, we have been for some time, and not only the the Russians but the Chinese have both been ex, uh, extraordinary uh, buyers of gold. They, they they have a pretty good sense of where things are going, and uh, it's they're, they're, they view themselves as our our competitors. And uh, you know, I'm, I'd I'd be um, encouraging people to oh, I'm, I mean, at least in the United States, people have the ability to to buy physical gold and silver. I, I, I look at coins uh, for the reason that if we get into a hyperinflation, and that's the real danger here, you know, which which could kill you otherwise. Hyperinflation, your your paper currency becomes worthless. Uh, but in a, in a hyperinflation, if you have uh, you go go to the grocery store, let, let's say you've you've bought a bag of uh, old silver U.S. coins, you can trade a quarter for food. You can trade a, a quarter for Food with a farmer out in the country, it's it's not things are not going to be easy in terms of you know, regular commerce. Back in Germany, the, sh the stores 
um, the shelves just went empty overnight with the with the uh, with the panic there. Um, but 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 with the with the precious metals, you have something that you can actually barter with that are meaningful. The gold for 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 bigger uh, bigger areas as well. But I I, I tend to use uh, I, I tend to buy coins because people recognize the coins as as being uh, legitimate, or at least they'll say, well, yeah, okay, that's you know that's probably real gold or real silver, as opposed to uh, a, a bar that they might want to assay. It's uh, just tr- in a barter situation. Uh, I, th- I think the coins are the better bet. Well, my guest on today's program has been Mr. John Williams. His website is shadowstats.com. I would encourage you to check it out. John, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Appreciate your updated forecast, and uh, would love to have you back again down the road. Thank you for joining us today. Well, you're most welcome, Dennis, and always uh, enjoy talking with you. Good luck. We will be back after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. And thanks again to my special guest this week, Mr. John Williams, for joining us on today's program. You know, we've been talking about Fed policy on today's program. By Fed policy, I mean Federal Reserve Bank policy. If you're a new listener, the Federal Reserve is a private bank. And back in 1913, Congress and then President Woodrow Wilson thought it would be a good idea to give control of U.S. monetary policy to private bankers. Now, past guest here on the program, Mr. Peter Schiff, wrote a piece on this that was published about a week and a half ago. The title of his article is, The Federal Reserve is a Money-Making Enterprise. Now, probably shouldn't come as any surprise that the Fed makes money. Because the Fed can create money out of thin air and then buy yielding assets. Now, what does that mean? Well, they can create currency out of thin air and use that newly created currency to go buy bonds. And those bonds pay the Fed interest. Now, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, recently released its unaudited preliminary financial statement for 2021. The Fed's total net income for 2021 came in at $107.8 billion. $107.8 billion. So Schiff, in his piece, asks, how does that level of income, that level of net income, compare to a legitimate business? Well, he used the example of Apple, and Apple booked a pre-tax income of $109 billion in fiscal year 2021. So that puts the Fed as far as net income is concerned, on par with Apple. Now, the Fed's total revenues for the year came in at $123.1 billion. They had expenses that dropped the net income down to $107.8 billion. Well, they received $122.4 billion in interest on holdings, basically bonds. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And again, to make the point, the Fed creates currency. It uses this newly created currency to go buy bonds, and then it collects the interest. Pretty good deal, huh? 
And by the way, the Fed does not pay taxes, but it does remit nearly all of its net income to the U.S. Treasury as required by law. Now, Schiff points out that plenty of people still get a cut of the pie before the Fed sends all that cash over to the federal government. The Fed paid $583 million in statutory dividends to the shareholders of the 12 regional Federal Reserve banks. Bankers also get a nice cut. The Fed paid $5.3 billion in interest on the reserves it holds for banks. That's at a rate of 0.15%. Now, the Fed also has expenses. For example, it cost them a billion dollars to produce, issue, and retire the paper dollars that are getting worn out, and about $2 billion expenses for foreign currency revaluation losses. Uncle Sam's cut was $107.4 billion, which was the highest level since 2015. And Schiff said, the lesson here is there's big money in central banking, and it's nice work if you can get it, but you can't. Meanwhile, world central banks, the same banks that are issuing fiat currencies, are stockpiling gold. According to data recently released by the World Gold Council, as of September of 2021, the total amount of gold held in reserves by central banks globally exceeded 36,000 tons for the first time since 1990. This 31-year record was the result of the world's central banks adding more than 4,500 tons of gold to their holdings over the past decade. Now, if central banks that are issuing fiat currencies are buying gold, what does that suggest that you might consider? Now, the U.S. currency, the dollar, still dominates all others in international trade and in reserves. However, this is quickly changing. Bloomberg issued a report just a few weeks ago that reported that the Central Bank of Russia now holds more in gold than they do in U.S. dollars. The Central Bank of Russia has gold reserves amounting to 23% of its total reserves and dollar reserves amounting to 22% of its total reserves. Now, it's important that we look at what central banks are doing rather than listen to what central banks are saying. See, these central bankers clearly understand that as fiat currency debasement continues and even accelerates, physical gold for part of your assets is a good thing for many investors to consider to provide a haven from this debasement. Now, to that end, I have some resources that I've been offering on today's program and all this month during the month of January. I do have a report titled The Changing Face of Long-Term Medical Care that I'll be glad to send you if you go to requestyourreport.com. And when you go to that website, requestyourreport.com, I'll also send you a copy of my best-selling revenue sourcing book, which contains a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy, as well as a lot of bonus information, all very timely to the topics we've talked about today. 
Again, go to requestyourreport.com. Give me your name and address. Let me know where to send your box of stuff, and I'll be glad to do so at no cost or obligation to you. That's requestyourreport.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back again next week.